right. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. You're going to go to Acts chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles on the chairs there underneath you, around you. And if you're using those, you're going to page 1233. 1233. And hey, while you're turning there, hey, if you are a praying person, uh, when you think about it this morning as I'm preaching, will you just pray for me? Um, during the first, I want to be able to give you a uh, double barrel preaching this morning, but I feel my throat getting a little thin from some allergies. And last service, I, had, I was on the verge of tickling and throat coughing and all that. So hey, if you just think of it, just pray for my, my, my voice, because like I said, I don't want to hold back this morning. It wouldn't be fair to you if I hold back this morning. Okay, all right. So, um, <clears throat> as we're going to Acts chapter 4, we're continuing our series. And so, just so you kind of know where we're going, we're going to continue Acts through November. And then we're going to take a break from Acts in November and then uh, do a Christmas series. And then come January, we'll have a, a, a right after Christmas, we'll have a, a couple of standalone sermons. And then in January, we'll pick back where we leave off uh, from the book of Acts. So, that should get us through uh, uh, chapter 5 at the book of Acts before Christmas. All right, so Acts chapter 4. So um, as you're turning there, you know, there are, there are times as you're living out your faith, as, as you are following Christ, as you're following Jesus, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, if you trusted in Christ, there are times that the way you're called to live will collide with how others expect you to live. There are, there are times where the way that you're called to treat people, the way that you have been changed because of Christ calls you to, to treat people differently will collide with the way other people expect you to treat people. There's just going to be those moments where what you believe, your, your faith in Christ, and the way that you are following after Christ is not going to line up with someone else, and they're actually going to oppose you. So maybe it's at work and, and you, you've become a believer and now your life has changed and you're, you're constantly changing as you learn more about who God is and about what he has done for you and how as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, you're called to live. And then now that changes the way you operate in your work environment. And maybe now you can't do things that your boss once asked you to do because you recognize that it might lack integrity. Or maybe as a student, you've got friends and a friend group where you've been with that friend group. And now as you're growing in Christ and as you're growing in your faith in Christ, you realize I can't do some of the things that they do or like to do. And so as you start to, to pull back from some of that, you, you start to experience their um, maybe some opposition from them. Maybe they start to kind of push you away and say, fine, are you too good for us? Because you've started to collide with the way you're called to live and the way that they expect you to live. Maybe it's in a family. Maybe, maybe you're one of those people in the family where, where they say, when we're, we're gathering for Christmas or Thanksgiving, don't bring your Jesus. He doesn't, he's not a part of our family. And you're the only one in your family or you're one of few who live and, and shine the light of Christ amongst your family. But during family gatherings, they don't want you to do that. And the way that you are called to live and the way others expect you to live start to collide. And there's this tension that starts to come inside of you. You have a choice to make. You have a decision to make. Will I give in to the pressure? Will I back down? Will I soften some things so that I don't, I don't offend maybe as much or so that I can keep the peace? Or will I stand? Or will I speak? Will I do what I know I'm called to do and avoid doing what I'm not called to do? And that tension will be in you and you'll have a decision to make. And this morning we see some guys who they had that same decision to make. They knew what God had called them to do. They knew what God expected them to do. But then the people that they were interacting with had different expectations. And so here's what we're going to find. Don't let those who are bothered by the message of Jesus keep you from following Jesus. 
Don't let those who are bothered by the message of Jesus, because there will be those, keep you from following Jesus. So let's see how that that plays out here. Acts chapter 4. Sometimes as we're following Jesus, we're going to have opportunities to declare the message of Jesus. There's going to be times where we have an opportunity to declare the message, to speak the things that Jesus has taught us to speak, to declare the message that Jesus has given us. And here's how that played out for these guys. Acts chapter 4 verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people. Now, keep in mind here, we're picking up a story that we've been in for the last three weeks. Remember there was this man who couldn't walk from birth and he was sitting at the temple gate and then uh, Peter and John come by. Peter and John look at the man. He says, hey, do you have any money? They say, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, Nazarene stand up and walk. And the guy who has never walked in his life stands up and walks for the first time ever. And then he goes into this temple, a very public place, and he's leaping and he's dancing and he's praising God and he's causing quite a, a, quite a stir. People start to gather around and Peter, last week what we saw in chapter three, Peter's preaching to the people. The crowd gathered. God did this miracle. It gathered a crowd. Peter's going to preach, right? And, and he starts to tell them, hey, look, the man that you see walking before you, the man who's been sitting at the gate for years that couldn't walk, he has been healed through faith in Christ. And he's declaring the message of Jesus. And all these people are around listening. That's what we saw last week. We pick it up this week, same story, but now there's other people that the camera focuses in on. See, if we were watching this play out in a movie, you would see the, the, the last scene last week, it was focused on the crowd, the people. And they're listening to Peter preach. But now all of a sudden, the crowd starts to fade in the background and you kind of zero in on certain individuals in that crowd. It's the religious leaders. And we're going to see how they respond. So when it starts off while Peter and John were speaking to the people, that's the crowd. But then it tells us the priests and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to him. Now the priests would be like the pastors. These would have been the guys who were there to help. Uh, if you brought your sacrifice, they would take the sacrifice for you. These are the guys who would manage the things in the temple. They would help you carry out your practicing of your faith. The commander of the temple guard, this is the guy who's entrusted with uh, the, the order of the temple, all things that take place in the temple, which was a large area. He was the one who was in charge of keeping the peace in there, making sure order was kept in there. And then the Sadducees, this is a religious group. Now, in that day, um, they were considered conservative. Today, we would consider them more liberal because one of the things that set them apart as a religious group was they did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in a future resurrection. And, and in that day, they were considered conservative because they only read and practiced the first five books of the Old Testament. Whereas other groups like the Pharisees, which you've heard of, they would have been practicing the prophets as well and Psalms and Proverbs. But the Sadducees, they were known for their restrictions. And they were, they were limiting themselves to the first five books of Pentateuch. And so because when they read those books, they didn't see any evidence of a resurrection in the future. They didn't believe in that. Of course, Jesus came along and, and would correct that for them and show them how even in the first five books of the Bible, there's evidence of a resurrection. But these people together, these are power players. These are influencers. These are leaders. These are people who can make things happen, especially in the temple and especially if you were a Jew. We go on in verse 2. These people, they come up to him angry because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. There's going to be people, when you declare the message of Jesus, that it's going to bother them. There are going to be people, when you talk about Jesus, when you tell about what God has done for you through Christ, it's going to bother them. There are people, when you take what they consider to be private and you bring it into the public, it's going to bother them. 
Because maybe you're in your workplace and people are saying, no, no, your faith, that's a private thing. You keep it to yourself. But you, you can't do that. Because you understand that your faith is interwoven in every part of who you are. It impacts every part of who you are and what you do. And so it's not that you're being overly obnoxious. It's just that you can't deny that. And so when someone says, hey, do you practice, uh, do you observe Christmas maybe? Something like that. And you're like, yeah, I observe Christmas. And they, they want to make it about just a, a holiday thing. You know, it's the birth of Jesus or something like that. You're just having a simple conversation. You realize I can't separate these things, right? But it's going to bother people. Maybe someone's going to ask you one day, hey, why do you go to church on Sundays? And you're going to start telling them about what God has done for you through Christ. And maybe it doesn't bother that person, but someone else gets word about it. And it's going to bother them. Maybe God starts to do things in your workplace, in your classroom, in your family. He starts to change people's lives. And all of a sudden, people who were never uh, on fire for Christ, all of a sudden, they're on fire for Christ. Or people who had never trusted in Christ now start to trust in Christ. And it starts to change the dynamic of your family. But it bothers some people makes them angry because that's not how they're used to doing things. That's not what they want to do. And that's what's going on here. These people are angry. And they're particularly angry because Peter and John were talking about a resurrection and a resurrection particularly through Jesus. You see, for the Sadducees especially, that was a problem because not only as Jewish leaders had they not recognized Jesus as their Messiah, they did not believe Jesus was the promised one from God. They did not make that connection. They were not willing to do that. But the Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection, are hearing Peter and John talk about a resurrection specifically through Jesus. And so Peter and John are wedding those two together and saying, God will bring the resurrection through Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, others will be raised from the dead. And that makes a connection that they were unwilling as, these, as the, the Sadducees to make. And so they're angry. And what do angry people do? What do religious people do when they're made uncomfortable by others? They start to manage that. They start to manage that which makes them uncomfortable. They start to arrange things and try to quiet people down. They try to do, do things to kind of restore the status quo. And so they seize them, verse 3, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. They say, we're going to put these guys in jail. We're going to make them quiet. They're, they're, they're proclaiming things that are stirring people up. They're, they're, they're proclaiming things that are in disagreement to us. There's a guy that's been healed. They're doing things that are making people excited. That's just not what we're used to. That's not what we want. That's not what we want to see happen. That's out of our control. Let's manage. And that's what religious people do. They manage things when it makes them uncomfortable. Oh, you don't speak the way I speak about Jesus. Oh, you get a little bit too excited for me. And we start to manage those people how many of you, when, when you first trusted in Christ, you had a zeal for Christ and sharing the gospel that has started to wane over the years? And you don't have to raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about, though. You get saved. You get, you get on fire for Christ. Nobody can stop you from sharing the gospel. Nobody can tell you who you can't share the gospel. You've got this excitement. It's raw. It's real. And then you go to church. And you, you run across someone who that's not the case for them. It's not raw. It's not real. It makes them uncomfortable. And they start to manage because we don't want that excitement to start to spread. Because why? Because your excitement, it's just not who we are as church people at this church or whatever church you go to. It's not how we talk about God. It's not what we, we, we think God does these days. And so you start to try to manage people. You see, we're not, we're not all that different. When somebody makes us uncomfortable, when someone starts to talk about God in a way that makes us uncomfortable, and I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about somebody who's proclaiming things about God that are not true. I'm talking about they're just different from you. 
They, they've got more passion than you and their passion makes you uncomfortable. Why? Maybe because you wish you had that passion. Maybe because you've never had that passion. Maybe it's just because that's just not what you're used to. I don't know why. But you start to want to manage that. That's what happened to me. I can remember when I first got, got saved, I first came out of a church. Now, I grew up in a church, and I learned how to play church really well, and I learned how to go through the motions really well, stand when I'm supposed to stand, sit when I'm supposed to sit, recite when I'm supposed to recite, play the part that I'm supposed to play on Sunday mornings, make sure when you ask me how I'm doing, I give you some kind of good church answer. I knew how to do that. I knew how to hide my family drama, even though everybody in the church knew my family drama. I knew how to hide it, and I played church. I knew how to play it. I remember when I got pulled out of that. I was saved while in that environment, but I remember when God got a hold of me. And all of a sudden, there was a passion that wasn't there before. There was, there was an excitement that wasn't there before. There was an enthusiasm that wasn't there before. And I can remember there's people that were uncomfortable. I can remember when I switched churches as I got to college and I was part of a worship team there and Sunday mornings, my understanding was before I can get up and lead worship, I've got to be right with the Lord. And so that meant for me, if there's uh, uh, unconfessed sin in my life, I need to deal with that. And sometimes I would deal with that publicly. Sometimes I would start in our prayer circle as we're, we're praying, I would start to confess some things out loud, raw stuff, not inappropriate stuff for other people to hear. Like it wasn't like, I can't believe you shared that in a mixed company type of stuff, but it was stuff that was real raw. God, I'm dealing with anger toward this person right now. God, I, I'm struggling with jealousy. And I just put it out there. And I can remember a couple comments from time to time going, man, you're just so honest. But behind that was, and that makes me uncomfortable. Like, can you keep that to yourself? But to me, I'm, I'm putting it out there. Well, I learned over time that makes people uncomfortable. And so I started to learn what things I should keep in and what things I shouldn't, even though none of those things were inappropriate to share. But we do that. We manage people. And that's what's going on here. They're, they're doing things. They're disrupting things. They're disrupting our order, our chaos, uh, our comfort. So they seize them, verse 3, and put them in jail until the next day. But even despite that, look at verse 4. But many of those who had listened to the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. You know what? Peter and John, they're preaching. They're proclaiming the, the, the message of Jesus. They're declaring the message, and God is using it, even despite the persecution, even despite that they're being put in jail. They knew they were facing opposition, and yet they proclaimed it anyway. And here's the thing about, about the gospel. Here's the thing about the message of Jesus. When it's proclaimed, people respond. When it's proclaimed, people have an opportunity to respond. Because Paul would say later in Romans, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone goes? Peter and John were proclaiming the message of Jesus and people were responding. And here's the thing, the biblical authors, particularly the New Testament, they tell us that there will always be people who will respond to the gospel. We don't know who they are. They're out there. It's a guarantee that when the gospel is preached, people will respond. You and I don't get to pick who they are. You and I don't get to determine when that happens. We're just to proclaim the message. And God's guarantee is there will be some who respond. You may never see it. You may never hear about it. But if you don't proclaim it, they won't hear it. And we see God doing that. He was already working. He was already moving. So they get put in jail. But he's already been watering seeds planting seeds, and then bringing about the growth. Even some of the people in the crowd believed. And it says the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, that's specifically men. This is not a case where men means both men and women. This is specifically men, which means it was more than 5,000. 
Now, we're talking about a couple days, maybe a week or two. How many people on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, are we told came to faith in Christ after Peter preached? About 3,000. So in a matter of a couple days, maybe a week or two, all still within the city limits of Jerusalem, right? They've not spread yet. This is all within the the city limits of Jerusalem. Now we're over 5,000 people who have trusted in Christ. God's continuing to work. His message is continuing to be proclaimed and he's bringing about the growth. But on the next day, verse five, the rulers, the elders and the experts in the law came together in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others who were members of the high priest family. These are all the power players within the temple. These are all the influencers. Verse 7, after making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, by what a power or what, author, by what power or by what name did you do this? So they're asking about the healing. By what power or by what name Did you do this? And we talked about the name before. The name represents the person. So they're asking, on whose authority have you done this? Now, Jesus was asked that same question when he was on earth ministering. And it was shortly thereafter when he gave his answer that the religious leaders, the pastors, the teachers of the day accused him of doing that by healing, by casting out demons, by the power of Satan. Same question comes back up. This man's been healed. Whose power are you doing that in? Whose name are you operating in? Who gave you the authority to do that? Never mind that a guy walked who's never walked in his life. Who gave you the authority to do this? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're coming back to that, replied, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, in other words, by what means this man was healed. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. See, Peter's talking to these Jewish people and he can't let that go. But we're doing this in the name of Jesus. By the way, you crucified him. But then every time he says, you crucified him, he follows it up with whom God raised from the dead. This man stands before you healthy. See, Peter's not going to let that go. He told them in Acts chapter 2, you Jewish people, you're the ones who crucified him. You handed them over, all the while acknowledging God's role in it as well. It's a tension, right? All right, so Peter's filled with the Spirit, and he starts to speak as he's filled with the Spirit. Now, we're going to see the filling of the Spirit come up in Acts several other times, but I want to go a little bit deeper in that today. Back in Acts chapter 2, we talked about it when we looked at Pentecost, and we talked about two different works of the Spirit, baptism and filling. And we saw that on the day of Pentecost, we had baptism taking place and filling taking place. Baptism, we talked about, was a one-time act of the Spirit. Happens when you place your trust in Christ, when you are converted, when you're changed. And that's the process by which the Spirit of God joins you or connects you to Christ. So that the Bible, the biblical authors can speak about us being the body of Christ. It's such a close relationship and a connection that we're described of being in Christ as part of the body of Christ. That's baptism. Happens one time, cannot be undone. And sometimes when we talk about baptism, we talk about the indwelling of the spirit. It's at that moment that God puts his spirit inside of you. And that never changes. You're never unindwelled by the Spirit. There's never a point where the Spirit, this side of the cross, leaves you once God gives it to you. That's important. You always have the same amount of the Spirit all the time. Baptism connects you to Christ. One time, may, may not, usually is not accompanied by some kind of supernatural sign or experience. Sometimes you don't even know it's taking place unless you knew that the Bible teaches you it t- takes place. 
Acts chapter 2 is a little bit different because we had several things happening at one time. And it was the first time ever in history that God sent his spirit to indwell people like that. Never had happened before. Never before in history had God sent his spirit to connect people to Christ. Why? Because Christ had not yet come and he had not been raised from the dead and he had not been seated at the right hand of the Father where he was made the head of the church. Until Christ is made the head of the church, you can't be connected to him as part of the church. Until Christ is given as head of the body, the church, you can't be connected as part of the body. That's why that never happened before. So on that day in Acts chapter 2, God's doing something completely unique. People needed to know this is different. And the Spirit has come. But normally baptism of the Spirit doesn't happen with signs and wonders and unique things. Filling of the Spirit is different. Filling of the Spirit is a continuous uh, thing that the Spirit makes available. And it's more about being controlled by the Spirit. It's not that you get more of the Spirit than you already have. You can't. You already have all the Spirit indwelling you, and there's no more or less that can be given to you. But it's more about being controlled by the Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, he was talking to the people in this church, and he would say, hey, don't be drunk with wine or controlled by wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And the idea is that of being controlled. Just like when you get drunk, you're under the influence He instead wants you to be under the influence of the Spirit. It's about control, right? And he says, be filled. So it's a command, you be filled, but it's passive. Like, I get filled. How do you do that? How do you do a passive command? Be filled with the Spirit. Well, sometimes when we're trying to explain this, We go on one extreme or another. One extreme is this. Well, uh, because of my experiences, because of my tradition or what I'm comfortable with, um, being filled with the Spirit is never based on experience. It's never accompanied by experience. There's never anything supernatural. It's really all about me living out my life and my beliefs in Christ and submitting to the Spirit. And as I submit to the Spirit, as I submit to the Scriptures, then that's me being controlled by the Spirit. But there's no experience with that. On the other side of it is this. Uh, There's always experience with it, usually supernatural and and wonderful experiences like the gift of tongues or something like that. And then I'm able to do something that I wasn't able to do before. And it's all experience, but there's no emphasis on the way I live. And both of those extremes are wrong because he says, you be filled. There's a command, which means I've got to do something here. And just because I'm doing something doesn't mean I earn anything, but it means I have a part to play. But then it's be filled. It's passive. In other words, God does that. How do I do that? If I were to command my kids to to do something passively, it would drive them crazy. Here's how it is. It's both and. It's kind of like a sailboat. Okay, so if you're on the sea and you're going to sail, the goal is that you want your sail to catch the wind so that the wind drives you. But on one hand, if you're over here, it's kind of like this. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to get in my sailboat and, I, and I'm going to raise my sail, but I'm not really going to try to align it and catch with the wind. See, the wind's always moving. The wind's always going to be blowing. You and I can't change that. We can't shape the direction of that. And it's like the Spirit. The Spirit's always moving. The Spirit's always working around us. You and I can't change that. The question is, are we going to get on board with that? Are we going to be influenced by that? And when, when the, uh, the, the biblical authors talk about the Spirit, the word they use, pneuma, can be breath. It can be wind. And it can be spirit. And you have to determine from the context which one they're talking about. So when Paul in Ephesians says, be filled with the spirit, they would have heard pneuma. And in their mind, they're hearing wind, breath, spirit. And they have to determine what is he talking about. And sometimes the answer is yes. In other words, be filled with the spirit. And it's like the wind and breath. 
And so like that sailboat, it's like I'm raising my sail so that I can catch the wind, but I'm not going to really position it. The wind's blowing one way, but I don't want to really position my sail to catch the wind. And so many Christians live their life thinking they're filled by the Spirit, never being filled by the Spirit, sitting in the sailboat enjoying the view. Isn't it nice? It's so calm. Oh, it's so serene out here. The, the wind's blowing all around, but the boat's just going up and down because the, the sail's not aligned with the wind. And we think that's what it means to live and be filled by the Spirit. But it's not, it's not about just sitting in the boat. It's about, I've got to align my sails. And so the way we align ourselves is, is I live my life in submission to the Spirit. I, I'm, 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 I'm living in submission to the Word of God so that my life is open, my heart is open to what God is doing because the Spirit is always moving, always around you. The Spirit is working. Maybe He's working in someone's life, in your work, in your family, in your household, in your classroom. He's always working. And the question is, are you open to seeing that? Are you open to being a part of that? Maybe he wants to use you, but your sails aren't aligned yet because maybe there's something in your life that's blocking you from being influenced or controlled by the Spirit. And you're living your life, and all the while you think, I'm being filled by the Spirit. You're not. You're missing out. But being filled by the Spirit is the key to living the Christian life because it's being filled by the Spirit by which we're able to do things that we couldn't naturally do on our own. God gives us a spirit so that we would live dependent upon the spirit, that we would live in the power of the spirit. And sometimes being filled with the spirit comes with experiences. Sometimes it comes with signs and wonders, supernatural things, a power that enables us to do something we couldn't naturally do. Sometimes being filled by the spirit means a person who wouldn't normally be able to do something, all of a sudden by the power of the spirit given to them by the grace of God, they're able to do something they couldn't do. And people look at him and go, you aren't able to do that, so how are you doing that? And the only explanation is, it's the Spirit. That's how the boldness for Peter comes. It's that boldness, that, that, that Spirit that empowered them to be bold and to speak. Sometimes being filled by the Spirit means God takes a person who has gifts, skills, talents, things that he's given them, but being filled by the Spirit amplifies those things in such a way where they're able to do something beyond their own ability, and it's all for the glory of God. And being filled by the Spirit is all about the glory of God and accomplishing what God is, is calling you to do, not what you want to do. So there's two different works that we're talking about. One, indwelling or baptism of the Spirit. Happens one time. It's unique. The Spirit's always in you. So don't hear me when I say being filled by the Spirit means somehow you lost it to begin with and now you've got to get it back. No, no. You're always filled with the Spirit. You trust in Christ, He gives you His Spirit. Spirit lives inside of you. Always, you become the holy place of God. You become the temple of God. Being filled by the Spirit is about control. It's about being influenced by something. It's like the sailboat. I align my life with God. I, I work to submit. But even in me working to submit and align myself with God, I don't get to muster up something that says, God, now give me your Spirit. I pray for that. God, fill me with your Spirit. Use me if you want to use me. Guide and direct me. But when God fills you with his spirit, it's purely by his grace. Nothing that you do, nothing that you did earned that. But you've got to be aligned, just like the sail. The wind's going to blow when it's going to blow. The question is, is your sail aligned when it's blowing? And what happens when that wind catches the sail? That boat just starts to soar on the water effortlessly. It just moves in the direction of the wind. And being filled with the Spirit is like that. It's being controlled, influenced by the Spirit so that you're effortlessly able to do what God wants you to do. That may be to declare a message with boldness. That may be to get through a hard time. That may be to live out your faith in a, in a situation that maybe there's so much pressure you're not able to do that. 
Peter's filled with the Spirit and he starts to speak. And he declares the, the message of Christ, that this man was healed through Christ. Now, I want to also show you something else because I think it's neat. When Jesus says something, and then you actually see it happen. So back in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, here's what we see. Jesus says to his followers, his disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you should say. So here we got Peter and John and they're standing before these religious leaders and they're asking the question, by what power, whose authority are you doing this? And how do they come up with the words to say? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. Look, don't worry about it because when you get to that spot, the Spirit's going to guide and direct you and give you the words that you need to say. Peter, filled with the Spirit, says. It's neat when Jesus says something and it actually happens. It means that we can trust him when he says things are going to happen and when he's going to do some things. So why can't we trust him more? Why don't we trust him more? All right, but then we go back. Back in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus, and this is Peter still talking, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and that has become the cornerstone. And so he's quoting from Psalm 118. This is a passage that these Jewish leaders would have known. And the, the passage says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Peter's taking that verse, and he's saying it applies right here. The stone, that's Jesus. You, the religious leaders, you're the builders, you looked at that stone as you're building your structure and you said, I'm not going to use that stone. It's not right for what I want to do. It's not what I want. It's not a good stone. He says, you rejected that stone. The stone that you rejected has become the cornerstone, the most prominent stone, the most important stone in the structure, the stone that gets laid first because before it's laid, the foundation cannot be laid, the stone that from it, everything else is aligned. He says to these guys, Jesus is the stone. You're the builders. You rejected him. God has elevated him. God has raised him from the dead. In verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. And so Peter's making this connection because God has raised him from the dead. He's the one that, that he's been promising for so long. He's elevated him up. And because of that, there's salvation in no one else. No one else can save people except God through Jesus. That means not you, not me. I can't save myself. I can't bring before God what's needed for me to be accepted into God's family. You can't bring before God, no matter how good you are on your best day, you cannot bring before God what is needed from God to be accepted in his family. There's salvation in no other name. It's clear. Peter makes it so clear. You cannot be saved apart from Christ. Jesus said it this way in John when he was still on earth, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's salvation in no other place. So they declared the message, but sometime as you're living out your life and you come into opposition, you're going to have to defend the message. You're going to have to give a hope. Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, always be ready to give an answer as to the hope that you have. There's going to be times as you're following Christ, as you're living out your beliefs, you're going to have to give an answer. Let's see what they did. Verse 13, when they saw, this is the religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, where'd they get that boldness? From the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit. It gives them boldness to preach. And discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men. 
They were amazed and recognized these men as having been with Jesus. Here's the thing. When they say uneducated and ordinary, they mean Peter and John were not educated in the scriptures. They weren't trained to be pastors or teachers. They weren't trained to be priests. They didn't have uh, extra training in the Old Testament scriptures. And yet here they are using the Old Testament scriptures to explain to these religious leaders, the, the priests and the Sadducees, how God has elevated Jesus above all of them. As how he's elevated Jesus as the cornerstone, the most prominent one, and how salvation comes through Jesus and no one else. And they're listening to them and they see the boldness, the confidence that they're speaking with them. They're going, who, who are these men? They're not trained. Because being filled with the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit, being controlled and influenced by the Spirit takes ordinary people and makes them do extraordinary things. It takes people who would normally not be able to do something and it takes them beyond what their own limits are. You know, I've prayed that prayer for me and I've prayed that prayer for that church and I continue to do that, that God do something in me that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. In other words, do something to me that's bigger than me and that even if people oppose it, they cannot explain it except by saying has to be God. God, do something in this church that is utterly disproportionate to who we are as a group of people. Do something in this church, God, through this church that even though people may oppose it, they can't explain it away except by saying it's going to be God. They were bold. Verse 14, and because they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say against it. I love it. This man has been healed. And these religious leaders are going, we can't deny that. We know this man. Everybody knows this man. We can't deny that something miraculous has happened here. And yet we can't explain how these men are so bold in what they're preaching. So, like religious people do, but when they had ordered them to go outside the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? For it is plain to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable miraculous sign has come about through them, and we cannot deny it. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to manage this situation? We can't squash it because people know and have seen this man. We can't say that it's, that it's some kind of natural uh, explanation that he was just faking it. We can't say that. We can't say that he put some kind of oils on him and all of a sudden those oils, you know, that he got from Young Living was able to heal him. We can't say that, right? Was that too much? Too much, sorry. Okay, so we can't go that far. Like, we can't explain it away. We can't deny it. But to keep this matter from spreading... Even though we can't deny it, we got to keep it quiet. We got to contain it. We got to manage it. We got to move things around because we don't want this spreading. In order to keep it matter from spreading any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. We're going to give them a stern talking to. We're going we're gonna to try to squash their resolve. We're going to threaten them and say, if you keep speaking in the name of Jesus, you're not going to like the results. Maybe you've gotten that at work in your family. Maybe you've gotten that guilt trip placed on you and you weren't even being obnoxious about it. If you were being obnoxious, get the guilt trip, take it and heed it. But if you weren't even being obnoxious and they say to you, you need to leave that at home. I don't want you reading your Bible at work. I don't want you talking about Jesus. I don't want you telling people what you believe. That's private. I don't want you to bring that and, and, and offer to pray at Thanksgiving or, 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 or our Christmas gathering. Leave him out of that. That's not part of this family. Otherwise, you're going to cut yourself out. You're going to ostracize yourself, alienate yourself, whatever the case may be. They try to manage it. That's what they did to keep this matter from spreading any further. Let's warn them to speak no more. And they called them in, so they bring the guys back in, Peter and John, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John replied, whether it is right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide. In other words, they say, look, there's a decision to be made, but it's not on our end. You've got a decision to make. Is it right for us to obey God or is it right for us to obey you? Who's, who's higher? And he says, but for us, verse 20, it is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. It is impossible, Peter says. We cannot withhold what we have seen and heard. It's impossible. Could we say that? Could we say it's impossible for me to speak about what I've seen and heard God do in my life? I think most of us probably function that way. We'd say it's possible. Oh, yeah, put the right pressure on me. It's possible. But when you've been changed by the grace of God, when God's gotten a hold of you and his spirit indwells you and you know that you've been changed, you know the depths from which God had to reach to pull you out, you know the grace that he had to give and extend to you that you didn't deserve. When you get that God took what you deserved and gave you what you didn't deserve all through Christ and he adopts you in and calls you his son or his daughter never to disown you, never to unadopt you. When you get that, you can't help but speak about what God has done what you've seen, and what you've heard. It becomes impossible for you to not speak. That's where Peter and John are like, we can't, we can't help it. I know what God has done. I know what he's done in my life. I know who I was and, and, and what I was deserving of, and I'm not getting that. I can't help but share that. And so when they had authorities tell them, you can't do this, they understood that they answered to a higher authority. Is it right for us to obey you over God? You decide, but for us, we can't help but speak. And here's the thing. Sometimes you're going to have to defend your message, the message of Jesus. Sometimes you're going to have to defend the way you live. And it's going to be met with opposition. Defend it. Do it with boldness. And then be prepared to accept the consequences from men. Because it may not be a happy ending. You may not have a happily ever after. And they gave them their freedom of religious rights and they were able to speak. You may not get that. Look, in this country, we're not persecuted. We, we are pressured, but we're not persecuted. See, to call us persecuted in this country would be to water down what people who are actually persecuted go through. See, in this country, for you to call yourself a Christian is not to put your life in danger. For you to call yourself a follower of Christ is not to be at the, the risk of losing your life or being cut off from your family. Now, some of you, you may have been cut off from your family. But by, the most, by and large, for the most part, we are not persecuted. We're pressured. We're not persecuted. But even though we are pressured, sometimes we will cower away. And when we have the opportunity to defend and declare the message, we need to do so with boldness, seeking to be filled by the power of the Spirit so we have the right words to say. And then you know what? We may not get the outcome that we want, but we can trust God in whatever outcome we get. Because God doesn't promise us protection. He doesn't promise that we're going to all get to live a long, happy life, see our grandkids. You know, we may. Many of us do. And if you do, you, it's a blessing. Some people don't. And that's still God's good to them. He said it's impossible for us not to speak. That's not the answer that those guys wanted. So verse 21, after threatening them further, maybe they didn't hear us, so let's speak louder. Let's get a little more serious about this. They released them, for they could not find how to punish them on account of the people, because they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the miraculous sign of healing had been performed was over 40 years old. Jeff, you can go and come on up. Don't let those who are bothered by the message of Jesus keep you from following 
Jesus. You will receive pressure. Some of you, maybe God's going to call you to a place one day where you will be persecuted for it. But people will always be bothered by the message of Jesus. Don't back down. Don't be obnoxious, but don't back down. The gospel is offensive all by itself. We don't need to give people an extra reason to be offended by it because of the way you handle it. But when you declare the message of Jesus, when you live out your beliefs in your workplace, in your classrooms, among your family, it's going to bother people. They're going to try to manage you. They're going to try to shift things around so it, it fits into their mold. Don't, don't give in to that. Don't let it stop you from following Christ. And so this morning, maybe for some of you as we respond to this is, God, fill me with your spirit. Some of those areas in my life that are preventing me from being more controlled by you, to being more influenced by you. And maybe there's some sin, some unconfessed sin. Look, God knows what it is. And look, if you're a child of God, he's not, he's not disowning you because of that. But instead, he calls us to walk in the light. He doesn't want you to hide in darkness, which is what we do because we feel guilty when we sin, right? And we should feel guilty when we sin. We, we, we violate the standards of God. We violate the glory of God. And, but our reaction typically is, I'm going to shrink back in the dark, God, until I feel better about this, until enough time has passed. And all the while, God says, no, I want you to walk in the light. I want you to come before me and be honest with me so we can restore this and keep moving forward. It's like you as a parent, if you love your kid and they do something wrong, you want them to come to you. You don't want them to hide it and cover it up and try to patch things over. I mean, if you're a good parent, you know when your kid's hiding something from you. Mom, can I make you dinner tonight? What did you do? Mom, can I go, can I, any chores you want me to do? What's going on, right? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But we do that with God, our Father. Otherwise, he says, it's coming light. Confess your sin. Christ has already paid for it. The forgiveness is already there. But let's restore our relationship. Let's not hide. Let's not be dysfunctional, you and I. Let's have open channels of communication. So maybe for some of you this morning, that's what you need to do. God, here's what's going on in my life. You already know it, but now I'm acknowledging it. And then receive the forgiveness that's yours in Christ. For the others of you this morning, it's verse 12. There is salvation in no other name apart from Christ. And this morning, God's calling you into his family. This morning, God's saying to you, hey, you need to stop trying. You can't save yourself. No matter how good you are on your best day, it doesn't reach the standard. But instead, there's salvation in no other name apart from Christ, which means Christ came and lived the life that you're trying to live. The one that you try to live but fail at. Every day, he did it perfectly, without sin. And he did it in your place. And he did it in my place. And then he went to the cross and he took what you and I deserve. The penalty that, that I earned because of my sin was death. And when Christ was hanging on that cross, God was taking his wrath and his judgment toward our sin and he was putting it on Christ instead of on us. And he poured it all out on Christ. So there's no judgment left for you. There's no wrath of God left for you if you're in Christ. And when Christ raised from the dead, he rose to a new type of life. And now God says, look, trust in him. Place your faith in him. Stop trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in. We call that repentance. And instead, turn to God and trust in Christ. Stop carrying a burden that's not yours. And hear God say to you this morning, now you're my son. Now you're my daughter. And I welcome you in. So wherever you're at this morning, let's go before the Lord with it. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Confidence.
for your goodness to us. And God, there may be some things that are preventing us this morning from seeing the way that you're moving all around us. There may be some, some things this morning that are causing us to doubt you, that are causing us to fall away from you. And maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a situation, a job. Maybe it's lack of resources. Whatever it is, would you call that to mind right now? that face, that person, that job, the thing that's keeping you from trusting in God this morning, that thing that to you feels like a mountain that needs to move. And as you're seeing that, be reminded that God has a history of moving mountains. He has a history of doing things that seem impossible to us, but with God there's nothing that's impossible. He says, you had just enough faith, just the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. That thing that's blocking you this morning, maybe God wants to move that out today, but he's waiting for you to respond by faith. So God, would you stir that faith up in us where it's lacking, that we would trust you to stand true to your promises. And God, there's others here this morning where this morning maybe you're calling them into a relationship with you, into, their, into your family. God, would you open their heart to, to understand how great your love is for them, that they might believe in Christ and receive the gift that you have for them through Christ. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, and with that, you guys are dismissed. We'll see you next week.